Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back, everyone, to Your Case is on Hold. This is episode eight. Can you believe we've already been doing this for eight episodes? I can't. I can't get enough. This is covering the April 20th issue of the journal Bone and Joint Surgery. Welcome back to all of you who have been uh, following along with the podcast with each episode, or welcome for the first time for those of you who may be listening as a first-time listener, we are happy that you're joining us to hear all the best in orthopedic research with a touch of entertainment, maybe a little bit more than just a touch, uh, but certainly an added dose. A uh, couple of reminders. This episode is brought to you by the Miller Review Course. It's getting close to that time, and it's never a bad time to enhance your orthopedic knowledge. So check in with that for lifelong learners and those on the verge of testing for the ABOS. Uh, In addition, the opinions on this podcast are those of myself and Antonia and are not reflective of the editorial board, editorial stance, the board of trustees, or any of the other constituent journals in the JBJS portfolio. For those who may be listening or have already listened and have not yet to do it, be sure to subscribe, give us a rating on uh, Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen that helps us out. And if you subscribe, that make sure you get every notification for the latest issue of your cases on hold that will drop. For those who may be listening and saying, who is this guy? I'm Andrew Schoenfeld, Deputy Editor for Statistics and Methods at the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, because with great power comes great response intelligence. And my co-host is... Antonia Chen, who doesn't have power or jokes, but is here along for a really fun ride. And I am the editor for Adult Reconstruction Need. So a pleasure to be here as always, and we look forward to talking more about this next issue of JBJS. And we'll step right into the headlines at this point. My headline is rate of return to work after periacetabular osteotomy and its influencing factors. This study includes 83 patients. It's an experience uh, from hospital out of Japan. Very important to recognize that these types of works are only facilitated in situations where you have a relatively rare type of surgery performed by individuals who are not only expert at the execution of the procedure, but then also in retaining the patients for continued follow-up. So they had 83 patients, 85 hips with symptomatic DDH who had undergone periastabular osteotomy between December of 2015 and June, 2020. And they followed those individuals for return to work capacity, ability to return to work, and the factors that were informing the ability to return to work. They also assessed a number of outcome measures. So ultimately, they were able to include 68 patients and um, 15 were ultimately unable to work. So the determinations that they make are really in the context of these 15 patients in the uh, non-returnee group. Uh, Seven were in the um, 
not what they call the non-hip subgroup and eight were classified in the hip subgroup. In making those comparisons, they did not find uh, differences. Obviously, those are baseline, you know, primarily bivariate comparisons. So one year after the osteotomy, eight patients cannot return to work because of their hip symptoms. Both clinical parameters and the type of work showed no direct relationship with postoperative working status. Now, for those who are avid listeners, uh, you may recognize some of the talking points I'm about to raise here, which is that in a situation such as this, their experience may not necessarily translate to your own experience. So certainly take a look at the demographic tables and see how these match up with the clinical parameters of your own patients if you're entertaining this or you're wanting to use this to uh, help with clinical decision-making and inform the patients in your practice about risks and abilities to return to work. Uh, At the same time, saying things like, well, there's no difference between these groups when you have these really small numbers, that's a ski mask move right there because you're trying to get away with something. And as Nicki Minaj says, if you're heavy on the ski mask too, Ski mask isn't just for the pandemic. And that that part right there is, um, you know, we're going to have to blow the whistle and say it's a hook and hold, 22 blue, two shots, taking the ball out here, retain possession. But overall, other than that, it is an interesting work. And uh, really check it out for a therapeutic level four study in terms of the rarity of the procedure and the relative comprehensive nature of their post-operative surveillance, I would recommend it. I hear you on that one. It's They might have different incentives to return to work. As an Asian American myself, there might be different incentives in America versus in other countries. So there are other ways that we're driven by. So return to work, while a good metric may not be called. So it'd be nice. You know, we do calls for research. It'd be great to see that here. It's a different population. Obviously, we don't see as many of those PAOs, but it'd be really good to see in different geographic regions and the return to work there. So my headline is on spinal pelvic characteristics normalized one year after total hyperoptoplasty, a prospective longitudinal case-controlled study by Inman and all. And again, you don't take my word for this. There's a commentary associated with this one as well. So the thing is, we've been performing total hyperoptoplasty for decades, and all the outcome studies demonstrate that outcomes after total hips actually do very well. But this is normally looking at things like patient satisfaction and the functional standpoint of patients. Um, Rarely is it assessed in how they do radiographically after surgery. And, you know, hip spine syndrome has blown up over the last few years, combining our, by our powers combined, we are finally coming as one. Captain Planet does it. We're doing it in the body too. It's a nice combination. And since we have this big emphasis on the hip spine syndrome and where the lumbar spine affects the hip pathology, the question remains, can we, can performing total hip arthroplasty actually change this hip spine syndrome? Is what we're doing actually making a difference in the dynamics um, of the, these patients? So it's a prospective study. And instead of comparing, you're just looking at THA patients, they compare them to um, propensity score match pay, a cohort of healthy volunteers. They only match by three areas. So age, sex, and BMI, obviously be nicer to match with more, but at least it's a good start. And they looked at dynamic radiographic comparison. So from standing to sitting and then, you know, standing. So they had different dynamic views of the hips and they did do multiple radiographic measurements just to make sure there's consistency. So that was good in the methodology as well too. And they did do a sample size calculation looking at a greater than 10 degree change in the pelvic tilt. And again, they've, they've re- they reached that in their um, sample size. 
the interesting thing and probably not surprising given all the focus on this is in the pre-total hip arthroplasty patient population. Now, this is just looking at OA patients, not looking at AVA patients or patients for hip fracture or things like that. And there were differences in this previous population. So going from standing to sitting, there were less mean changes in hip flexion, greater mean changes in pelvic tilt and greater mean lumbar movements. But after total hip arthroplasty, they all disappeared. They were similar between the healthy cohort and the post-THA cohort. So the key after THA is to they say aim for normal or stiff post-operative spine, uh, spinal pelvic mobility. Don't do hypermobility. Um, now they still use the Oxford hip score measurement, right? So we're still using those PROMS measurements to correlate this with the radiographic measurements, which has been done before. But it's interesting to say, okay, after hip replacements, we're not making a difference. So we are making a difference with this total hip replacement uh, procedure. Now, we don't know if this is true outside of the parameters of this patient population. Similar to the first study you just talked about, you're looking at a Japanese population. Well, here we're looking at a German population. Could this be different, right? We're looking at German patients, certain ages, and again, THA only for OA or AV, not AVN or fractures. It would actually be really interesting to see from a methodological standpoint when these changes happen. Now, they looked one year after total hip, which is a good amount of time, but did that change happen earlier? Did it happen at six months post-op? Did it happen at nine months post-op? Is this still going at two years post-op, three years post-op, four years post-op? Does it change? Should it be really nice to see some longitudinal studies for that and compare and expand the cohort of patients to compare different populations? But it is an interesting study to see what are we doing? What, what we do with our patients, does it make a difference? So I think it was interesting in that way. Um, and I wouldn't put very much of this on hold. Yeah, sounds good. Well done work. I think all the, the salient points are really touched on in your commentary. I like that. Next up, we have your case on hold. The your case is on hold featurette. This is the effect of patient age and surgical appropriateness and their influence on surgeon recommendations for primary total knee arthroplasty, a cross-sectional study of 2037 patients. This is from Hawker and colleagues in Canada. What have you got? So, you know, the study looked at patient age and surgical appropriateness to see if surgeons were more or less likely to recommend patients for primary total knee if they were younger or older. Now, this is an interesting conundrum that we've been facing as total knee patients because our total knee surgeons, and we looked at this actually from an ethical standpoint, you know, is it good for us to be operating on younger and younger patients? Now, I will start off by saying that this is a very specific population. Again, we're going all the way around the world. We started with Japan, then we had Germany, now we have Canada. Right. International Journal. <laughs> we welcome all individuals. This is a wonderful thing. But the population of patients here is very different in Canada with a one-payer system and who undergoes surgery versus in a country like the United States. Population of patients and population of surgeons, as well as their motivations. Very true. And that's the key factor I hear that makes a big, big difference because a patient must demonstrate a huge need for total arthroplasty before they're allowed to undergo surgery. And the surgeons there only are allowed to do so many cases in a period of time. So their wait lists are sometimes one year or longer to do a total knee replacement. So you really need to demonstrate necessity. So if this was done in a different population of patients with different insurance status or activity level demand or conservative treatment tried, it might be a totally different outcome. The majority of patients were greater than 60 years old, which is to be expected in this patient population. And there were symptoms, more symptoms of patients who were younger, which again, these patients who were younger were probably not present to an orthopedic surgeon or be passed on by their PCPs in Canada, unless they were bad enough to be considered for a total knee replacement. 
Now, things that like higher BMI, you know, which can contribute to a developing OA and smoking contributes to worse outcomes. These are important things that we look at in our patient population to optimize patients prior to surgery. And not surprisingly, younger patients wanted to restore return to exercise and sporting activities more so than just ADLs. So in univariate analysis, it said that younger patients were less likely to be recommended for surgery and potentially because this is the thinking of, okay, we put a metal plastic and metal and that polyethylene will wear with time. We try to want to maximize the non-operative treatment before we get to that patient. But when you adjusted for TKA need, readiness, and willingness and health status in this patient population, there was no difference. So that was interesting to see. I would just take it with a grain of salt because this patient population is very different than what you'll see in many other patient populations. Your thoughts? I think that the points that you made are uh, incredibly appropriate. We spoke in the last episode about broadening indications. In spine, of course, um, my field, there is a bigger concern about discretionary surgery and indications, at least as far as something like instrumented fusion, are not on the same level as total knee replacement for severe osteoarthritis. But then when you say severe osteoarthritis, maybe the term severe means different things to different people. And in the last episode, we talked about the uh, researchers down at NYU emphasizing the, or at least raising the potential for broadening indications in the population. And that's what I thought we were going to get here. When I initially like saw this, you know, slated on the table of contents, I thought we were going to get an insight into the the irredeemable bad actors in orthopedic surgery, like the orthopedic equivalents of Skeletor, Cobra Commander, Nunvalak, the Witch King of Angmar, Cersei from Game of Thrones, Regina George, Heath Ledger's Joker, not Jack Nicholson's Joker. He was too cartoonish. And uh, wink and nod to all those bad girl fans out there for the Regina George. But that's not what this, you know, sort of, they could have done that, but they didn't do that. (laughs) <laughs> that would be interesting. It would be interesting to see that angle, but they didn't, they didn't do that. They went more on sort of, and again, as you pointed out, patients who are already being referred within this sort of what we would call a centrally managed system, it's like they probably are going to need it. The part that, that they emphasized that I found to be curious was, you know, they, they sort of raised an issue about younger patients with larger BMI. And then when their main motivation was to get back to a higher level of physical activity, and they sort of intimated that these are bad things because it will increase the need for revision down the road, which to me, and granted, I don't work in this space, but to me, it's like, so if you think someone's at a higher risk of revision down the road, then you don't give them what might be indicated. I I don't know. Like that, that point was a little bit, I, I wasn't sure really what to, to make of that. You know, this type of work, though, very hard to do in settings outside the system where you have kind of a confiscatory, you can put your arms around the entire population. So a very interesting study and uh, one worth uh, looking at. I just think um, let's do it here and see what happens. Maybe we'll find the bad players here in the United States. Yeah, I mean, it's just it would be a lot harder to do something like this uh, because of you know, if you're working with Medicare data, then you're just talking about Medicare patients and you can't see, you can't have your arms around just sort of every practitioner, every patient that they see, you'd only see Medicare patients. Or if you're doing Truven or market scan, you're only seeing the patients with insurance or the type of plans that go into those systems. Or if you're doing the, the, you know, some other type of like 
NISQIP, NIS, not that they're corollaries to this, but then you always see the patients that actually had the surgery. So very difficult to do something like this in a U.S. setting. So probably not going to see something like that on the American side anytime soon, I wouldn't expect. So this study is on hold. <laughs> Our start, this is pending study. In yeah, the- yeah, your, your research idea is, is research on-, idea is on hold. Not this study, but... <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, all right, moving on to toss-up time. Toss-ups. Tell me about the toss-up. This is The about- toss-up is in regard to survivorship of 4,748 contemporary total ankle replacements from the French Discharge Records Database. This is by Daniel and colleagues, most appropriate from Montpellier, France. There is a visual summary. So uh, if you'd like to have a look at that, it can be helpful to unpack the work that was done here. This uh, study, as we said, was done through a French registry, and it's on patients who received total ankle arthroplasty between 2010 and 2019. This type of work is not as ubiquitous from what I can see within the foot and ankle research paradigm. So, you know, this many patients able to be followed for this amount of time and to look at risk factors in terms of uh, survivorship for these prostheses, very interesting, very important, and potentially very informative. They found that young age associated arthritis or deformities requiring concomitant fusion or osteotomy and implants derived from the second generation design of the total ankle replacement were risk factors associated with the need for revision. They also found a volume outcome relationship, which is very interesting. We've done some work in volume outcomes uh, around spine procedures, and I know that others in our setting have done volume outcome work in the setting of joint replacements. So the volume outcome relationship is well-established across many aspects of orthopedic surgery. And here, they found that the institutions doing more than 10 procedures per year had better survivorship. Uh, So that's potentially informative as well. Here, as we've touched on, and um, this is the fourth international study in as many studies that we've done. So here we're talking about France, but something that was really interesting to me that I think would intuitively play a role in the risk for failure is BMI and probably a big difference between U.S. population and that of France. And that's not something that they that they really touched on. With the issues around volume outcome relationships, there's always the potential for clustering on both sides, like clustering of bad outcomes with hospitals or providers that are just not adept at performing them. And then also clustering at the really good hospitals. You know, there's, this is not a procedure that's done ubiquitously by every surgeon. You really do have to have specialized training and probably a little bit more of a refined practice to perform these procedures on a regular basis. So there may also be components of selection indication and expertise bias that are confounding these results. But again, it, you know, within the context of the foot and ankle literature, you don't see works like this quite often. So um, this does stand out that way. What do you think? I agree. You know, it's like it's the one country that's going to be able to do this because they've been doing these total ankle replacements for the longest amount of time. They they really kind of were the forefront of it. So to see such long follow up is great. I probably would have loved to see just two year follow up as a starting point because really with these implants, that's what I really would have looked for. I would found it interesting. They kept talking about metal component revision. Um, but most of the time, that's what you're doing anyway when you're revising when it comes to total ankle. And then the early revision was defined within the first two years. So that's kind of really the area that we're looking for. The idea is that what's interesting is 
you know, that this gives us information about counseling patients, which we always talk about longevity of it. Uh, and fixation reasons are really the reasons that these are failing, right? They're not failing because of infections. Only 1.7% are failing infection. And as an infection person, I find that really impressive, actually, because that's just a dirty area. But <laughs> this is something that's going to be hold on. It's a limited cohort of parent patients. Also, we want to see this data in other places. But I think this is very informative. And this toss-up gives, I give it a thumbs up. Yep. Yep. Thumbs up. Across the board. All right. We're on to the big finish. We're going to go fast, like we always do. This is... Uh, Assessment of staphylococcal clinical isolates from periprosthetic joint infections for potential bacteriophage therapy from De Palma and colleagues. And there is an infographic. Tell me, tell me, tell me. So same thing I love, infection. It's a wonderful, wonderful area. We're all looking for the holy grail of treating periprosthetic joint infections. Bacteriophages have been very effective in other fields of medicine, and they've been, you know, splashed on the news and people have seen this. But the use of bacteriophages haven't really been used much in orthopedics and definitely not in periprosthetic joint infection, which is obviously something that we haven't been able to eradicate. So this is a study looking from a single institution looking at the PJI clinical isolates to identify the organisms present to see if they can be treated by available bacteriophages. And bacteriophages they found could be useful for treating the predominant staph aureus clinical isolates, mostly what they saw. But the problem is that it wasn't tested in the clinical environment. It only encompassed a small number of samples, right? So they took these clinical isolates, they took them out and they said, okay, a lot of these are staph aureus, which is not surprising. Most of our infections are from the skin. So staph aureus makes sense. They tested them and said, you know what, we can do the majority of them, but these secondary, smaller, slow growing staph aureus colonies may not be attacked by bacteriophages. So that's not enough for us to use as a single source element. So it's not the Holy grail. We're not saying this is the magic bullet this is the, you know, the Holy Grail. You're looking for the weapon, the holy hand grenade of Antioch. There which you is go. the relic that Brother Maynard carries. <laughs> it always comes back to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It always does. We can't help it. The best you blow up that rabbit by the cave of Kyrbana, which is the staff infection. <laughs> and take that. Like, wait, the staph infection is behind the rabbit? No, it is the rabbit. Oh, it is the rabbit. Nasty <laughs> pointy teeth. I'm never going to look at that rabbit the same again, ever. <laughs> you ruined Monty Python and the Holy Grail for me forever and ever. So long story short is it's good, interesting information. I put it slightly on hold because we need more information. We need more cases. We need more isolate. Then future studies are needed on bacteriophages to see if they're actually effective against these clinical isolates, not just in a laboratory setting, but actually in a clinical human body setting and whether or not this can be used alone, but more likely in conjunction with other treatments. But it still has the big, nasty, pointy teeth. (laughs) (laughs) Got to shave them down. Got to shave them down. All right. Tell me about comparison of two patient-reported outcome measures in brachial plexus birth injury, a systematic validation study. This is work that's done uh, out of uh, our neighbors at Boston Children's, uh, Wheelerman and colleagues. They compared the legacy pediatric outcomes data collection instrument, that's PODCI or PODC, uh, to promise measures uh, for patients with uh, brachial plexus birth injuries. This includes 50 patients. Again, the type of work that can only be done at a center that's tertiary, referral, generally academic to collect this and make these kinds of comparisons. It's a cross-sectional prospective study. As with all cross-sectional studies, it's just you know a single point in time. They did find a ceiling effect for the PODSI, but not for PROMISE. PROMISE also had better uh, discriminant validity. 
and they recommend the adoption of the promise and that there are notable benefits to its adoption uh, in terms of future work of a prospective nature for outcomes for patients with these difficult issues. So for those working in the space or those generally interested about comparisons across emerging promise measures, uh, definitely check it out. Uh, it is it is well done. All these cases are passing by. They're getting the thumbs up. That's right. That's right. Um, it's very favorable reviews this uh, this month. Next, uh, we have risk factors for delayed hospital admission and surgical treatment of open tibial fractures in Tanzania. We've covered almost all the continents, I feel like. Uh, This is by Holler and colleagues. It is free for 30 days, so don't just take it from us. Check it out yourself. No excuses. We need studies from Antarctica. That's really what we're missing, (laughs) those penguins. So what I like to say about this type of study is knowing is half the battle. And that is a wonderful quote from my guy, Joe. Perfect. You got it. So really understanding what risk factors delay hospital admissions and surgical treatment of open tibial fractures, specifically in Tanzania, and is important to understand ways how we can address this. And this is a public health issue, right? We need to be able to bring patients to the hospital and then be able to get surgery for these patients. So it sounds like most of the problems in this study, and again, this is only one specific region, stem from actually presenting to the hospital in the first place because 95% did not present in the hospital within two hours, less about the patients of delay. Now, there were delays, but it's only 10% of patients. So decreased delay in presenting the hospital came from insurance, wounds with approximately skin edges, interfacility referrals, and patients with rural injury location, right? If they're in a rural area, it's going to be hard to get a patient to the hospital. So that makes sense. But how do we facilitate that? Do we improve transportation? Do we increase hospitals? It's a lot. You know, it's one of those things where just identifying the problem and knowledge is half the battle, not the whole battle, just half the battle. So what was surprising for me is that older age resulted in earlier time to surgery. I feel like in the U.S. we have the opposite effect. Whenever I have a patient who has like a hip fracture, if they have opial tibia fracture, they need like 65 different clearances. And I'm like, this patient needs surgery, needs to be treated. So that was kind of surprising to me. But fragility can obviously play a role in that. Um, single person households had an earlier surgical time, um, which was interesting for me because I would think that if there was a big group family and, you know, these countries sometimes, you know, they live in big fam- units with a lot of family members, they just say, let's get this person to go. But maybe there's a lot of decision making and deciding and whether or not they should actually go to the hospital. So it could be a little bit confounded in different areas. Education level is something that places will have looked at in different studies as well, too. The only thing with this is that this is informative. It doesn't actually tell us the outcomes of delayed surgical treatment if they were problematic, right? So if they presented more than two hours, did it actually make a difference or not? If they got surgery more than 12 hours, did it actually make a difference? So we don't have the correlation of delayed hospital admission and surgical treatment to outcomes. But the whole idea is that if you look at the intro here, the Lancet recommends patients to present within two hours with open tibial fractures. And that's a great goal to have. And I think we should do this throughout the world. So, you know, we'll shortening the time, improve treatment outcomes. We don't know. What are the best ways to modify these and take these nuggets of wisdom that we're learning from the study and apply them and make changes? We don't know. Can the study be done in other settings, you know, open femur fracture, distal open distal radius fractures and determine different outcomes? That's something to think about. And again, can we do this in other countries, Antarctica aside, <laughs> where it actually makes a difference where we can see, are there correlations and patterns that work? Have other countries already done this where they've in, uh, implemented different you know, public health changes to actually make a difference? So it's good to see this information. I think we need to know this and we need to know this more and more throughout the world. And can we make these changes? Perfect. Industry on to the last one. 
Are you creating crosswalks for the knee outcomes after ACL reconstruction between the COOS and the ID, IKDC uh, SKF by Johnson all with a commentary? Yeah. So see what others are thinking as well. We come back to the United States for the last one. The Blue Hens of the University of Delaware in collabo with the Golden Gophers of the University of Minnesota. And this is a academic focused work where they did a statistical crosswalk to convert cohort and registry coup scores with the IKBC SKF. And they used data from three ACL registries to do this. The crosswalks were successful, but at the group level only. So this is really more for group level comparisons than individual level comparisons. And what this really does is it facilitates crosswalk data comparison from different patient-reported outcome measures that can be pooled for meta-analysis across studies or even across countries. So for those who are working in this space, and obviously coups crosses between sports and total joints, um, there's coups and coups junior, right? Like coups is the uh, original gorilla that was then beaten by Mario and locked up and then Coos Jr. has to come in part two to rescue him. But in all seriousness, uh, oh, definitely. Oh, a junior, not, not because not to be taken mistaken for being smaller in size, but still as powerful. Right. Definitely. Definitely powers for Coos Jr. So uh, definitely check those out. As I'm sure all of you are regretting, I'm regretting it myself. Our episode has come to an end. We're out of time. We promise to do better next time, uh, but hopefully you enjoyed and we'll continue tuning in. Looking forward to it. 